good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. I can't tell you how glad I am to be here looking at you instead of looking at a computer screen and recording this. So uh, thankful to, to be here, thankful to have everybody here in the auditorium, and of course thankful for all of those that are uh, in the parking lot listening in to the car service and those that are streaming at home. Um, again, we're glad to be back to our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, our format tonight is going to be just a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to uh, offer a prayer in just a minute, and then we'll have our class, and we'll have a short invitation, um, and then we'll have our invitation song. Uh, so if you are here and you'd like to take your books out or if you're out in the car, the invitation song is going to be number 284, What Will Your Answer Be? Uh, if you've been paying attention to the emails, there are lots of individuals, lots of our own number right now that need our, our prayers. Um, we've had several folks that have had surgeries in the past few days, and I, I believe we've got a couple of surgeries that are coming up this week. Um, also want to remember the Simmons family, uh, Darcy Simmons, with uh, the passing of her father. Um, and then also I was told tonight that the Creeches are going to be going on an extended trip for the next six or seven weeks. So they're going to be away for us for some time, and we're going to miss them, and we're certainly going to be praying for them. Uh, so if you would, let's, let's bow together in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the awesome and the almighty God. We come before you this evening praising you for your might, your power, for your justice, but also for your mercy, your love, and your kindness. Father, we see that love and that kindness poured out upon us each and every day. We recognize that every day that we have been on this earth, we've been blessed by you. You have provided for us. You have taken care of us. Through good times and through trying times, you have always been there. Even when this world seems inconsistent and scary, you are that solid rock. You are the consistent one. You are the steadfast one. We praise you for that, Father, and we thank you for that. We ask that you would increase our faith, that in every circumstance we would turn to you. We would turn to you for praise. We would turn to you in times of need. Father, we come before you with thanksgiving that we can assemble once again to study from your word. We are so thankful for the scriptures you have preserved for us. And we ask that we would study it tonight with honest and open hearts, looking to learn lessons from your people, looking to learn lessons from their shortcomings, looking to learn lessons from the example of your prophet Jeremiah. We pray, Father, that we can take these things and apply them to our lives, to let our light shine and to be better servants of yours. As we just mentioned a minute ago, Father, we have many of our number that are in need right now. We have those that are recovering from surgeries. We have those that are preparing for surgeries. We have those that are going to be away from us for some time. We know that with the recent circumstances, Father, we have all been separated from the ones that we love in one manner or another. But, Father, we are so thankful that we can have unity in the Christian bond that we share. We thank you for that blessing. Be with us as we go throughout our service tonight, Father, that everything we do would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. It's in your Son's high and holy name that we pray. All right, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles and open to Jeremiah chapter 40. Uh, we've got a tall task tonight. We're going to try to cover uh, Jeremiah chapter 40 through 45. Um, and we're going to do it in a little bit of an abbreviated fashion. Um, the, the first couple of chapters are, are mainly historical. If you've been keeping up with us and you've been studying on your own, you know that chapter 39 that Matt covered last week, uh, we had reached perhaps the pinnacle of Jeremiah's 40-plus year ministry, and that was the fall of Jerusalem, the event that 
Jeremiah has been talking about over and over and over again came to pass. Uh, I think Matt used, uh, used this word. Uh, maybe this was a little bit of a validation for Jeremiah. Jeremiah had been doubted. Uh, Jeremiah had been persecuted. Um, and the event that he had been talking about again and again and again finally came to pass. Uh, as we read in chapter 39, uh, it didn't happen all at once. The siege actually took what appears to be about a year and a half. Uh, about a year and a half of siege around the city of Jerusalem before the walls were penetrated. We talked about how Zedekiah tried to escape again, once again, ignoring the uh, instructions of the Lord and the instructions of Jeremiah. He tried to escape rather than serving the Babylonians, and he paid a heavy price for it. Uh, he watched his sons die, had his eyes put out, and then was taken away captive with another group of people. Where we left off last week was a pretty bleak situation. What was left in the land was described as the poorest of the people. So when we finish up in, in chapter 39, we have the poorest of the people left in the city, captives being taken away, and Jerusalem being destroyed. Uh, so we have Gedaliah set up as the governor. This is an individual that has been set up as the governor um, he is going to be ruling over the land of Judah. He's going to be ruling over these people that have been left in the land. And he has set up his area at Mizpah. So Mizpah, a little bit north of Jerusalem there, um, setting up in Mizpah probably because there was no place to set up in Jerusalem. If Jerusalem had been destroyed and burned, he would have had to find a new place. So he's set up at Mizpah. And chapter 40 actually gives us a little bit more context to what happens at the end of chapter 39. Um, so at the end of chapter 39 and the beginning there of 40, it seems like there might have actually been a little bit of confusion because Jeremiah is being taken away with some of these captives. And so they get as far as Ramah, and I think Ramah was on there. Yeah, so Ramah, just, uh, just south there of Mizpah. They get as far as Ramah in chapter 40 when the captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan, takes Jeremiah and he frees him. And he gives him this choice. He says, listen, you can continue on with us. Or you can go wherever seems best to you. What struck me about this interaction between Jeremiah and Nebuzaradan was it seems that the enemy, Nebuzaradan, had a better understanding of what God's will was trying to accomplish than maybe even the people himself. Uh, look there in verse 3. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. The simple truth that the people failed to grasp for almost 40 years was grasped in an instant by, by this heathen, by this individual. Now, I'm not going to ascribe that he had uh, any, any, any desire to serve the Lord or any proper understanding of who the Lord was, but he grasped onto something that the people failed to. And honestly, we see his treatment of Jeremiah was far better than his own people. The way that he treated Jeremiah was kindly. He gave him this choice. You can go wherever you want to. You can come with us. Um, and Jeremiah ultimately chooses to go back to Mizpah, to be there with Gedaliah. As we come on to these next couple of verses, verses 6 through 10, Gedaliah speaks to the people, and he speaks to the commanders of the army. Uh, we find there that there are these individuals, and we're not entirely sure as to where these folks were. Um, perhaps they were in other parts of Judah, uh, fighting smaller battles. Uh, but we're, we're introduced to a couple of individuals. Uh, let's see, down there in verse 8. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Korea, Sariah, uh, the sons of Ephel, Jezaniah, the son of a Machthanite, 
they and their men. So these commanders of the remnant of the army have been out in the fields, and they have apparently gotten word that the war is over. Jerusalem has fallen. Babylon has won. Wherever they were at, whatever they are doing, it's pointless now, as if it wasn't pointless before. So now they come to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and Gedaliah offers them words of peace and encouragement. This was not the, the iron fist to these military commanders saying, listen, this is exactly what you need to do. You need to come here and serve me. We have dominated you. But rather, it's words of peace and words of encouragement. He, he, he tells them, verse 9, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon. It shall be well with you. It says in verse 10, gather wine, summer fruit, and oil. Put them in your vessels. Dwell in the cities that you have taken. A message of peace and encouragement. We even find in the next couple of verses that some of the other people that have been scattered, perhaps people over the past couple of years that have seen what was coming, that have fled to the surrounding nations, they start to come back. You're getting this little glimpse that maybe peace and stability is going to return to the land. However, there is a warning that's provided to get a lie in these last couple of verses, verses 11 through 16. One of the commanders, this individual, Johanan, he comes to Gedaliah in verse 14, and he says, Do you know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to murder you? So apparently Johanan has received some sort of intelligence. He's received this information that one of these other commanders, this individual named Ishmael, is conspiring with the Ammonites. The Ammonites are to the east. So if we were to go back to our map, and you were to look to the east there across the Jordan, that's where the Ammonites were. And apparently Ishmael has been conspiring with the Ammonites and plans to kill Gedaliah. Again, we don't have a whole lot of information, but Gedaliah dismisses this. Johanan even offers, he says, listen, allow me to go. I'll kill Ishmael for you before this even happens. And Gedaliah says no. And, and perhaps Gedaliah had honest intentions. Maybe he didn't want the fighting to continue. Maybe he truly wanted peace and stability. And he wasn't going to believe this hearsay. Maybe he thought it was just military commanders that were squabbling for position. Whatever the case was, to his own detriment, he didn't investigate this any further. And he didn't take seriously the warning of Johanan. And in chapter 41, unfortunately, this warning comes to pass. Ishmael's betrayal is made true in the first couple of verses of chapter 41. He pretends to partake in a feast with Gedaliah. Ishmael and several men come but instead, at this feast, at this, uh, this gathering that should have, been, should have been an enjoyable time, he kills Gedaliah. And not only Gedaliah, but he kills all of the individuals that are with him. Uh, it, it mentions there in, uh, let's see, I believe it's there in verse 2. Struck Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him. Verse 3, he also struck down all the Jews who were with him with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. Unfortunately, this betrayal doesn't stop there, but as you go into the next couple of verses, we find that there are these pilgrims that are coming. It mentions that they're coming from the northern territory, from the old nation of Israel, and it sounds like they are coming to Jerusalem, but we're not entirely sure why. Uh, we're given a little bit of information about them, and, and some of the writers had suggested that uh, perhaps there were some idolatrous connotations um, with the way that they had trimmed their beards, but perhaps it was just mourning. Perhaps these were just individuals that had come to, to mourn at the fall of Jerusalem. Whatever the case was, Gedaliah tricks them. He implores them to turn aside. Again, if you remember where Mizpah was, Mizpah was north of Jerusalem. These individuals were traveling south, 
from the northern territory of Israel, and he implores these individuals to come aside into Mizpah and to, to confer with Gedaliah, the new governor, Gedaliah, who has already been slain. Um, but Ishmael tricks them, and he kills all these individuals, save for a few. A few individuals give him a bribe. They say that they have some supplies they've hidden out in the field. And so Gedaliah allows those individuals to stay alive so that he can hopefully receive this bribe. But truly a, 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 a tragic kind of turn of events, just when you thought there was going to be a little bit of peace and a little bit of stability, after an incredibly dark hour, we're thrown right back into it again. Uh, it mentions here in chapter 41 a little bit of information about Ishmael that we weren't given before, that he was of the royal family. So you, you can imagine that this may have been part of the driving reason behind him wanting to conspire with the Ammonites. May, maybe he felt spurned that Babylon would turn the region over to Gedaliah, this Chaldean individual to govern it. Maybe he, as part of the royal family, thought that he was entitled to govern it. And this was possibly part of his plan with Ammon, to form this treaty and allow him to rule over the land. But whatever his motivations were, a, a truly wicked act to kill all these individuals and then to go on killing individuals that had no, no part or parcel in this, people that were just passing by. And I think that, that act in and of itself gives you a little bit of insight into what kind of a person Ishmael was, someone that truly desired bloodshed. But then he takes captive the rest of the people. This is in verses 10 through 18. And now he tries to escape to Ammon. But as you can imagine, th this word of this treachery spreads, especially if Johanan had an idea that this might be happening. If Johanan heard that Ishmael had come to feast with Gedaliah, he would probably be on high alert. And when word comes to Johanan later in the, cha later in the chapter, uh, verse 11, when Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael had done, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. And they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. As he is fleeing, as Ishmael is fleeing eastward back to Ammon with all these captives, you can imagine he's probably not traveling very fast. He's taking all these individuals with him. Um, he's not going to be traveling at the speed that men of war normally travel. So when Johanan and the other, cap, uh, the other captains of the military hear about this, they're able to overtake them. And when they get there, it appears they're able to rescue the people. So Ishmael and eight of his ten men escape. We're not told what happens, what's happened to the other two. But Ishmael and eight of his men escape across the River Jordan back to Ammon. But Johanan and the other captains of the army are able to rescue the rest of the people. And as the chapter leaves, we're given an interesting little bit of information there in verse 17. And this is Johanan and all the people. It says, They departed and they dwelt in the habitation of Chimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt, because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. So this gives us a little bit of information about where this remnant, where their mindset is at. Um, and we'll come back and touch on this in a little bit, but you can imagine if, if you think about this, this place that they're in, Babylon has just come in and has, has utterly destroyed the city. They've allowed you to stay. You have not been taken into captivity. You've been given this offer of peace. Go gather, gather, your, gather your summer fruits. Go inhabit your cities. This was, this was the method of the Babylonians. This was how they were able to expand their territory so far and wide. 
they wanted people to stay there. They would take some individuals back as captive, and they would allow remnants to stay there and govern themselves with their overarching rule. So you've been essentially given this gift of peace and stability and able to stay in your land, and the first thing you've done within a matter of months is kill the person that Babylon has put there. You, you can put yourself in the position of Johanan and the people. Retribution has got to come. If Babylon conquered us before, what are they going to do now to us? That we've killed the individual they've put as our ruler, and we've also killed Chaldeans that were among him, Chaldeans that were probably left to help rule. You can imagine the fear that would come upon them. And it sounds like they've already made their minds up as to what they're going to do about it. They're working their way back. They're coming back. They're going. They're down by the area of Bethlehem. And it sounds like they want to go to Egypt. A refrain that we have heard time and time again. And one that just, in some ways, should seem so ironic. They were enslaved in Egypt. Their fathers were enslaved in Egypt all those years ago. And they cried out to the Lord to break them free of those bonds. But yet, how long were they free of those bonds before they were saying, oh man, Egypt was so great. Egypt was fantastic. We had all of this bounty in Egypt, and now we're here in the desert. And time and time again, Egypt is this perfect straw man, where they can go back and say, oh man, Egypt was great. Egypt is going to solve all of our problems. If you look at the geopolitical situation at the time, Egypt is partly why they're in the situation they are. They have taken Egypt's side time and time again in this south versus north geopolitical battle with Judah waged in between. And despite the uh, clear instructions of the Lord through Jeremiah, Jeremiah has told them, you are going to serve Babylon. It would be better off for you to go ahead and submit and serve Babylon. But yet we see that these pharaohs of Egypt have encouraged these kings throughout the past several years to rebel against Babylon. And to rebel time and time again. And so Babylon eventually comes in to conquer them. But yet here they are again thinking that Egypt can solve all their problems. So let's go to, um, let's go to chapter 42. Now in chapter 42 we see a little bit of a different spin. Again, chapter 41, uh, chapter 41 and in verse 17 makes it seem like they've already got this intention to go to Egypt. But in 42 we see something a little bit different. These individuals actually come to Jeremiah. They come to Jeremiah and they ask in verse 2, Please let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord your God for all this remnant since we are left but a few of many as you can see that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing we should do. This is what they should have been doing all along. This is actually a hopeful sign. Imagine that the novel idea of God's people petitioning him in prayer to ask for guidance and direction. And that's what we have the people doing here. Is they are coming to Jeremiah, the Lord's prophet, who has been proven true after all these years. What was the mark of a prophet? If what he says actually comes to pass. So it should be clear to all the people now who the true prophets are and who the false prophets were. The false prophets all along were saying, no, peace, peace, peace. Jeremiah is the true prophet. So they come to him to petition the Lord. I don't want to read too much into the wording, but I do think it's interesting here that they say in verse 2, the Lord your God. And, and that's, it's only interesting to me because when Jeremiah responds, Jeremiah says in verse 4, I have heard, indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God. Maybe some, maybe some subtle rebuke there of Jeremiah. 
uh, thinking, you know, this isn't, this isn't, you know, some faraway God. This isn't some talisman you should pray to. This is your God who you should have a relationship with. And I will pray to your God for you. A again, the, the people, at least in word here, are, are saying the right things. When they, when they talk to Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, listen, I'll go to God, but I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to tell you exactly what he says. And they say, yes, that's, that's what we want. And they even say, verse 5, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us if we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you. If Jeremiah is still in Mizpah and they've come to Mizpah, they've traveled north to Mizpah to see him, I think this is interesting because that's actually where Mizpah gets its name from. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 31, verse 50, there was this interaction between Jacob and Laban. And they set up this heap of stones, and they called it Mizpah. And they said, allow the Lord to watch between us. Allow the Lord to serve as a witness between us of this covenant. This is what the people are saying here. Let God be a witness that we are going to do everything that God says. Ten days pass, and the Lord comes back. And he hasn't changed his message. He is saying the same thing through Jeremiah that he has said throughout the past several years. Verses 7 through 12. If you stay in the land... I will bless you and I will build you up. Just like he said before, if you submit to the Babylonians, I will take care of you. They didn't listen. I'm telling you now, stay in the land, I will bless you. Verses 13 through 19, he elaborates though, if you go to Egypt, the very things that you fear will follow you there. If you think that going to Egypt is going to solve all your problems, you're wrong. If you think that Nebuchadnezzar can't get to you in Egypt, you're wrong. If you think that I, the Lord your God, the sovereign king of the world, cannot get to you in Egypt, you are wrong. He is very clear with what he is saying to them. And then he drops the hammer on them in the, first couple, in the last couple of verses. Verses 20 through 22. And again, God knows the hearts of the people. He knew what they wanted all along. Let's read verses 20 through verse 22 of chapter 42. For you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord your God. And according to all the Lord your God says, so declare to us and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which he has sent you by me. Now therefore know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence in the place where you desire to go and dwell. Have, have they said anything? When you read through here, they haven't said, the people haven't responded. But Jeremiah and the Lord already know. He, he knows that while they might have been saying the right things, while they might have come to the right source, their hearts were not pure. They had no intention whatsoever of actually listening. They were potentially coming, maybe just get confirmation of what they were already going to do. Maybe they just thought it was, okay, this is the right thing to do. We're going to go to Egypt. Maybe we can appeal to this talisman or this good luck charm called God to see if he'll give us a blessing on our way. But whatever the situation was, the Lord knew their true intentions. They came hypocritically. They had no intention. And despite digging themselves in that hole saying, oh, God, be a witness. God, be a witness between us and you if we don't do what he says. He knew that they were going to reject the words of the Lord. And I think there's a lesson there for us. When you go to 1 John chapter 5, we find how we are supposed to approach God in prayer. But yet, I, I can tell you for my own self, I, I know that I, I fail many times in this way. How many times do we go to God asking for confirmation of what our own will is? Not coming to God asking for his will. 1 John chapter 5 and then verse 14. 
This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But yet it's so easy for us to fall into the same trap that the people here fall into. We go to God for confirmation. Maybe we go to God as a matter of routine. Well, it's nighttime. It's getting pretty sleepy. Time to pray. Ask God to bless all the things that I've already done and all the things I'm already planning on doing. And we have substituted our will for God's will. We're not going to him in prayer, appealing to God in prayer that his will be done. Those are something that we need to keep in mind. Well, let's go to the people's response in chapter 43. In chapter 43, when called out for their hypocrisy, it's amazing to me that their first uh, instinct is to make a weak attempt to blame Baruch, the scribe, of all people. <laughs> if, you, if you want to see how weak their counter-argument was, they've decided to blame Baruch, the scribe. Uh, they said, verse 2 of chapter 43, You speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you, but Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans. That's, that's the best they had. That's the best they had. Is, all right, Baruch is the one that is going to do this. What we can see is the people still have not grasped this. The people have not grasped that God desires a relationship with them. He's not looking for individuals that are going to just come before them and offer sacrifices and go on their way. He's not looking for individuals that are going to come before them, say a prayer, and then go on their way. He wants individuals that want to be in a relationship with him. Individuals that want to listen, that want to obey, that want to walk humbly. That's what God desires. But yet again, after time and time and time again, and just think about it. We're, we're, we're talking about just, I mean, months, a short period of time after Jerusalem has been absolutely destroyed. Is there any bigger signal in your life that God is unhappy with you? That you have sinned and you have not upheld your end of the covenant? You would think that that would have been the wake-up call that they needed to serve God. But their hearts don't change. They've rejected the word of the Lord. And in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 43, Johanan leads all the people that were left in the land, and they go to Egypt. And Jeremiah and Baruch are taken with them. But it's interesting that Jeremiah is not deterred from being the Lord's prophet. Even in Egypt, even as they're there, it mentions in verse 8 that they're in uh, Tapanese. Uh, Tapanese was one of the first cities. It's there on the northern part. Probably one of the first cities they would have come to as they're coming into Egypt. Uh, this is also where the house, uh, at least one, one of the houses of the Pharaoh would be. So they would have needed to stop there and probably ask for permission to dwell in this land. But as they're dwelling in, in Tapanese, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is still the Lord's faithful prophet. Whether he's in the pit, whether he's in his home, whether he is in, in Egypt, he is going to faithfully execute the word of the Lord. And as we've seen before, God gives him instructions to carry out a symbol. And this symbol is described to us, uh, verses, verses 9 and, and following there, he's to take, to, take these, uh, to take these bricks, to take these stones, and he's to hide them. I think it mentions there in verse 9. It says, hide them in the clay in the brick courtyard, which is at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Tapanes. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is in verse 10. Behold, I will send and I will bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal pavilion over them. When he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt and deliver to death those appointed for death, to captivity those for captivity, and to the sword those for the sword. I will kindle a fire 
and the houses of the gods of Egypt, he shall burn them and carry them away captive. Again, echoing the words that he has said before that they are not going to be out of the reach of Nebuchadnezzar. As we go to history, um, we are told that this, this came to pass. That God's word would come to pass. The current Pharaoh right now, we're uh, 586, 585. The current Pharaoh is Pharaoh Hophra. Um, both in Josephus and in, in Pritchard, they record two excursions that Nebuchadnezzar made into the northern region of Egypt. So in 581, in just a few years, Nebuchadnezzar would make a campaign into Egypt. And then later, uh, another, another campaign in 567 during the reign of Amasis. Either one of these could have brought about the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. But Tapanese being at the very northern there, almost at the mouth of the Nile, this would have been one of the first places that the Babylonian armies would have come. And we know that the word of God is going to be fulfilled. And these people would have seen Jeremiah's words come to pass. Well, let, let's go on. Chapter 44, as, as we're quickly running out of time, talks a little bit more about this. The lesson here in the first couple of verses, chapter 44, verses 1 through 10, this is Jeremiah's words to the people that you haven't listened. It's what we've been talking about tonight. You have not listened and you have not paid attention to the lessons that history has shown you. You haven't been humbled and you haven't feared the Lord. Just think about this. Three waves of captives have been taken away. The kings that you have set up have been toppled and replaced with leaders by other nations. Your cities, the walls have been penetrated, the temple has been burned, your cities have been destroyed, and now you're not even in your own land. You're hiding in Egypt. You've been scattered throughout these cities in Egypt. You haven't learned the lesson that God has tried to show you. He sent prophets to you time and time again to tell you what's going to happen. It then happens, and you still don't learn from it. And you haven't learned from it now. It sounds like from these first couple of verses that they are starting to engage in idolatry again, even there in the land of Egypt. They're engaging in idolatry. They're offering up this worship to the queen of heaven. And God is reiterating his promise to punish them, verses 11 through 14, just as he has said in the previous chapters. There's no place you can go where I will not punish you for your wickedness. We've talked before that other nations are not exempt from God's judgment. And later on in the next couple of chapters, I believe next week, Matt's going to talk about this a little bit. That there's going to be judgment that's going to come upon Egypt. There's going to be judgment that's going to come upon Ammon and Moab and Edom. Even Babylon itself. Babylon itself will be conquered by Persia. God does not spare judgment on those that commit wickedness and sin. And that's the lesson that people have failed to listen. And it's just, it's so frustrating to see their response. Because what's the response of the people here? Verses 15 through 19. They're actually doubling down. <laughs> They're not, they're not looking at this and saying, yeah, you're right, this idolatry thing really hasn't worked out for us. They actually double down and say, you know what, the reason we're here is we didn't worship idols enough. When Josiah really kind of moved us away from idolatry, that's really when things started going downhill. We, gotta re we really need to kick back up this whole idolatry thing. We need to offer more worship to the queen of heaven. You can, you can imagine being Jeremiah and just being, I mean, being dumbfounded. You say, really? Like, you are here back in Egypt. You've come full circle. You have come full circle from bondage all the way back to bondage again. And you think that the answer is more idolatry. But that's where the people were. And, and it seems in some ways, it seems so silly to sit here and look at it and think, you know, how could they not know any better? But yet, I feel like there are times in my own life when I've, I've come pretty full circle. 
where God has maybe tried to show us a lesson time and time again. He has tried to show us that our way does not work. Our logic does not work. And the people offer this logic here. It's just, it's just perverse logic. The truest thing they say is there in verse 17. We will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and we were well off and saw no trouble. Truest thing they've said. We're going to do whatever comes out of our own mouth. And that's sadly the lesson that they failed to learn and the lesson that we failed to learn. They only, they only wanted to do things their way. And despite just being beat upside the head and having every sign given to them, they could not realize that they were as stubborn and as disobedient as ever. And in the final 20 verses 20 down through verse 30, the Lord promises punishment for that sin. And he said, listen, you are going to only face punishment again. It's like disciplining a child. And you say no, and you discipline them. And they do it again. And you say no, and you discipline them. And you just go over and over and over again. And here we see God disciplining his children and having to do it over and over and over again. And he, he finishes up in this last couple of verses. He also says that if they think Egypt is going to protect them, they're sadly mistaken. As we have mentioned in chapter 43, God says that Hophra is going to fall to Babylon just as Zedekiah did, pointing out to them, do you not remember your last king, Zedekiah? Zedekiah, that uh, Matt has done a really good job talking about how wishy-washy Zedekiah was, how he would go to Jeremiah for advice and then not take it. He would pretend that he had interest in what the Lord had to say and then not do it. And they should know the price that he paid, watching your own sons die and then having your eyes put out. So that was the last thing that you saw before being taken away into captivity. A truly terrible end, and an end that's going to come for the people if they don't learn their lesson. Our, our time's getting away from us, so let's, let's cover very quickly this last chapter, chapter 45. Chapter 45 shifts. Uh, we've actually gone back in time now, and this chapter takes place during the reign of Jehoiakim. Um, so we've gone back some, some 20 years or so, and this is specifically talking about the time that he burned the scroll. So this was, uh, for context, uh, Jeremiah chapter 36 verses 20 through 26. Uh, Matt actually covered this, I believe it was last week, and he talked about it. I think he described it as one of the most blasphemous acts to think about having the word of God there in your hands. And if you recall, he had a knife and he cut it up and he threw it in the fire. And then on top of that, he tried to have Jeremiah and Baruch arrested, but God protected them. And this short chapter right here is some words of, of encouragement, a little bit of admonishment, but some words of encouragement to Baruch. It seems like during this event, whether it was the imprisonment or whether it was just the audacity of Jehoiakim to, to, to treat God's word that way, Baruch was despairing. In verse 3, Woe is me now, the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing and I find no rest. What Baruch needed to remember, though, was that he was serving God, the sovereign God. Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I will break down. What I have planted, I will pluck up. And that is the whole land. God is sovereign. If God builds it, he has the right to tear it down. If God plants it, he has the right to pull it up. He is the one that Baruch is serving. And he should take comfort in that. There's a little bit of an admonishment there. But there's also a little bit of encouragement. That that's the God that we're serving. We're not serving a wishy-washy evil king. We're serving a God that is constant and all-powerful. And then in verse 5, 
He says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity in all flesh. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. Again, the, the reward there for serving God. Baruch needed to focus on his role in serving the Lord, and God would protect his life. And that was a reminder that we see Jeremiah needing at times. Jeremiah getting a little bit discouraged and needing some encouragement and some admonishment from the Lord. Well, as we finish our chapters up, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to think, just by way of invitation, uh, by going back a little bit to that, that comment that I made. Um, and if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn over to Micah. Turn over to Micah chapter 6. I talked about the people failing to, failing to grasp this idea that God does not desire a transaction. God wants a relationship. God does not want us only to come to him when we need something. Like we're going to go to God in prayer and ask him for something that's going to be delivered the next day, hopefully two-day shipping, and then you know, we'll go on about our lives and forget God. He doesn't want a transaction. He doesn't want that kind of a relationship. He desires a very different relationship with us, but yet that's how the people treated him. They treated him the same way they treated the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this talisman. We've got a big battle coming up. Hey, go get the Ark and bring it with us, and it'll give us good luck. Sometimes the people would treat God like that, like he would be the one that would give them good luck. That's not what God desires then. That's certainly not what God desires now. Look at Micah chapter 6 and in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? We're talking here about some serious sacrifices. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, even up to your firstborn child. The greatest sacrifice of all, the greatest offering of all. Is that what God wants? Does he want things? Does he want a transaction from us? No. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I also thought of the statement by the psalmist in Psalm 51 and verse 17. He wants a contrite heart. That's what God desires from us. That's what God desired back then from his people. He wanted humility and a contrite heart. Individuals that recognized that they needed a God. They needed a covenant relationship. And in humility, they would seek that guidance and then obey that guidance and walk humbly in that relationship. That's the same thing that God wanted in the first century. I think you could insert some of these words into that sermon on the day of Pentecost. When the people have their hearts pricked and they realize exactly what they have done, that they have killed the Son of God. And they ask Peter, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. In repentance, you find humility. You find a contrite heart. And that's what God desires of us today, too. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Not a transaction. Not a talisman. Not a good luck charm. Not something that we just go to occasionally to get our fix. He wants a relationship. And if there's anybody that's here tonight that is missing that relationship, I would encourage you to think about these words. There, there's a lot of relationships right now that we're missing. I know that I'm missing. The, the distance that has been introduced into our society has caused some separation in a lot of different relationships. 
And I think we're missing those relationships. We're missing maybe the relationship with coworkers. We're missing the relationship with family. We're certainly missing the relationship with our brethren. We're separated. We don't have to be separated from God, though. God desires a relationship with us, and we can make that possible. He gives us instructions in his holy word for how to have the closest bond that we can possibly have with him. We can put on Christ in baptism. We can come to him with a contrite heart. We can walk humbly with him by having our sins washed away, by being buried with Christ and rising up a new creature. A new creature that's in a relationship with God that cannot be separated by any disease, that cannot be separated by any law, by any executive order. There's no separation there. And it's not only no separation on this earth, it's no separation for eternity. Imagine that. A relationship that cannot be severed for all eternity. If you want that relationship, we would love to help you. If there's anything we can do for you, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.